If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're interested in LA, or maybe you're planning a trip, and you probably have questions, lots of questions. Circa's new concierge feature will change how you travel. You can connect with us directly through the Circa app and we'll put you in touch with your very own local concierge to ask any questions you have. No matter when you're traveling, let us help make your trip to Los Angeles one to remember. For a limited time only, the Circa Concierge is completely free. So download the Circa app from the iOS app store and connect with us. You've got questions, we've got the answers. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. Welcome to Circa. You're listening to part two of our dark tour through Los Angeles. If you haven't heard part one yet, you might consider starting there. But if you want to jump right in, feel free. The water's lovely if you don't mind the sharks. In this episode, you'll hear about some places and some recommendations for things to do. Don't worry about taking notes. Like all of our episodes, we'll put it in the Circa app for you. In part one, we told you about the murder of the Black Dahlia and the terror wrought by Charles Manson. After Manson, life in L.A. changed, and the way the media covered crime in L.A. changed. Now, we leave the 1960s where love was free and arrive at an era where everything has a price. Circa, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. If the 60s were about dropping out, the 80s were about dialing it up to 11. This was the decade that gave us Dynasty and Dallas. Gordon Gekko's infamous line from the film Wall Street, Greed is Good, and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, which premiered in 1984. Our next story begins at one of these rich and famous palatial homes in L.A., Is Greed Good? The Menendez Brothers. As someone very sagely said during the parasite trials of the Menendez Brothers, anytime your kids kill you, you are at least partly to blame. Elizabeth Wurzel. 722 North Elm is a gorgeous two-story Mediterranean home nestled in the heart of pristine and posh Beverly Hills 90210. A few blocks away is one of the most famous luxury shopping streets in all the world, Rodeo Drive, baby. Originally built in 1927, this beautiful house sits on half an acre of land and has over 9,000 square feet of living space. It also has a two-story guest house, a private tennis court, and a pool. And it also has a story to tell, a story and a crime that epitomizes life in Los Angeles in the 1980s for a certain class of people. Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economic policy had produced a Wall Street boom and explosion of wealth. And that wealth was perhaps nowhere more on ostentatious display than a place like Los Angeles. 
Palatial estates, beamers and benzes galore, yuppies in $1,000 ties eating Caesar salads at places like Spago, which is still here, two blocks from Rodeo Drive. The higher the shoulder pads, the closer to God. The wealth and consumerism of that decade would lead to shows like Beverly Hills 90210 and movies like Pretty Woman. It even led to a stranger-than-fiction murder scandal involving a club called the Billionaire Boys Club, which was a group of wealthy sons all wrapped up in a Ponzi scheme and eventually a murder. Some say it would even inspire the Menendez brothers' murders. Was greed good? Maybe it was for some. On the night of August 20th, 1989, Robin Leach's champagne wishes and caviar dreams were not on the menu. This is the night that Eric and Lyle Menendez two handsome brothers, the sons of wealthy parents, Jose and Kitty Menendez, entered their home and murdered their parents with two 12-gauge shotguns. Lyle and Eric Menendez had spent most of their childhood and teen years in the posh town of Princeton, New Jersey. There, their father, Jose, was a successful businessman known for his bold ideas and his off-putting and pompous personality. He rose in the ranks of an accounting firm, then was hired as the VP of Hertz, the rental car company. From there, he moved to RCA, which brought him on as the COO of their music division, and Jose helped them sign acts like Menudo, the Eurythmics, and Duran Duran. The family lived in a New Jersey mansion. Jose had achieved the American dream times a million. Several million, in fact. But then, in 1986, Jose's company transfers him and his family to Los Angeles, Lyle, who has just graduated from high school, goes off to attend Princeton University while Eric begins attending Beverly Hills High School. Beverly Hills High School, by the way, is still operating on its original and legendary campus, and you can see it in plenty of films, including It's a Wonderful Life. Interestingly, though, it's not the high school set for Beverly Hills 90210. It does, however, boast a long list of celebrity alumni from Betty White to Lenny Kravitz to Angelina Jolie. Beverly Hills is where the Menendez family's problems come to a head. Because you see, though they looked perfect, things behind closed doors are far from it. Jose has been unfaithful to Kitty so many times over the decades that their marriage is now in tatters. Lyle has just gotten in major trouble at Princeton for plagiarism. His father is enraged about it. And Eric has fallen in with a wayward group of other rich kids without a cause who have started robbing houses and cars. A bling ring decades ahead of its time. But even this is only the tip of the iceberg, because the biggest secret in the Menendez house is what Jose allegedly does to his sons behind closed doors. According to testimony and interviews from both Lyle and Eric, their father began molesting them as young boys, and the abuse continued for Eric, who was still living at home. What really happened on the night of August 20th? It's hard to know for sure because, of course, the only two people who lived to tell the tale are the same two people who pulled the triggers. But as they tell it, there are a series of escalating arguments throughout the week culminating in a confrontation about the sexual abuse. Lyle intervenes and tells Jose that he's never going to touch his younger brother Eric again. Then, they say, Jose threatens them. And now Eric and Lyle come to believe that their father is going to kill them to keep them from revealing the family secret. And so, fearing for their lives, the brothers decide that this is it. 
They go to their car and retrieve guns that they had just conveniently purchased two days earlier, re-enter their home, and shoot their parents multiple times as they watch TV. Now, things are moving fast. First, the boys need to get rid of the shotguns and casings. They hop into their car and speed to Mulholland Drive, a road that winds from east to west through the Hollywood Hills, a drive that offers brilliant nighttime vistas of the city and is definitely worth doing yourself. We'll set you up with a link in the notes. Eric and Lyle toss the guns over a random hillside. Now they need to start establishing an alibi, and quickly. So they head back towards Beverly Hills. The roads that lead back from Mulholland to Beverly Hills run along several canyons, including Benedict Canyon, where Charles Manson and his company massacred Sharon Tate and her house guests almost exactly 20 years earlier. The Menendez brothers very likely pass right near the house on Cielo Drive, having no idea that they will soon become the next trial of the century. Then they head to a movie theater to see Batman. However, it's sold out, so they buy tickets for the next film that's playing. The movie is called Licensed to Kill. They may not be good at the whole alibi thing, but they sure have irony on lock. At a certain point, they realize their movie alibi is a little thin, so they leave the theater and head to a Taste of L.A. food festival, which is happening in the wealthy neighborhood of Santa Monica. There, they try to meet up with one of Lyle's friends. They wander around the festival for some time, looking for him with no luck. By this point, though, they wager they've killed enough time to cover their tracks. So they drive back home where they discover, or more accurately, rediscover, their parents' bodies and call the police. Eric sobs on the front lawn, and horrified neighbors look on in shock. When the police arrive, they tell them that their parents have been murdered. The police believe their distraught act enough that they fail to run gunshot residue tests on their hands. The boys are questioned that night but not arrested and they won't be arrested for several more months. Jose's and Kitty's funerals are a well-attended who's who of the rich and famous. Most everyone believes the boys to be tragically orphaned and making the best of it. But there are a few things that don't quite feel right. At the funeral, Lyle gives a 30-minute heart-wrenching eulogy to his parents, But then later, as they ride in the limo, he turns to his father's former secretary and says, Who said I couldn't fill my father's shoes? Lyle points to the tassel loafers on his feet and informs her that these are, in fact, his father's shoes. And then there is the small matter of their very large spending spree. In just a few months after their parents' murders, the brothers managed to spend almost $700,000 of an estate worth an estimated $14.5 million. They buy Rolex watches, three of them, just a few days after the murder, plus new cars, limousine service around New York, personal bodyguards, and courtside tickets to the Knicks. Friends, family, and the police harbor suspicions, but still the brothers are free. There is no definitive evidence of their guilt. Eric is about to change that. Eric is having issues. To help him through, he has a therapist. Dr. Jerome Oziel. He begins seeing Dr. Oziel after his parents murder and confesses to having suicidal thoughts. Dr. Oziel doesn't seem to understand why Eric wants to kill himself, and Eric needs him to understand what he's truly carrying. And so, on October 31, 1989, 
Halloween, the night when the veil between the living and the dead is said to be at its thinnest, Eric confesses to Dr. Oziel that he and his brother killed their parents. Now, doctor-patient confidentiality is no joke. So Dr. Oziel is bound by a professional obligation to keep Eric's confession a secret. And at first he does. He wants to talk to Lyle, too, but Lyle is livid. He can't believe Eric told his therapist. Perhaps he's even more than livid. He joins Eric for another therapy session, and Dr. Oziel describes him as menacing. Lyle tells the doctor that the brothers had discussed killing him to cover their tracks. Dr. Oziel now tells his girlfriend about the brothers' confession and their threats. And now, fearing for her life, his girlfriend goes to the police and tells them everything. See, Lyle thought Eric had made the blunder by telling Dr. Oziel, but in the end, it was Lyle's threat that voided their legal doctor-patient confidentiality and allowed the doctor to eventually testify against them. The brothers were arrested and instantly became the newest trial of the century in Los Angeles. Regardless of the facts, the press put a spotlight on have versus have not Los Angeles. Were the brothers so damaged from years of abuse that they were justified in killing their parents to escape it? Or were they greedy rich kids who saw their chance to be the next billionaire boys club members? The first jury couldn't decide, and so the brothers received a mistrial. All the while, they were housed in the Los Angeles County Jail as they waited for their next trial. After spending years behind bars awaiting a second trial, they would eventually be convicted and sentenced to life in prison. They were sent to different correctional facilities and wouldn't see each other for almost 20 years. In the meantime, they would both eventually marry women who wrote them letters while in prison. Today, their story is getting renewed attention as a TikTok campaign to relitigate their case in the wake of the hashtag MeToo movement and society's evolving thoughts about sexual abuse. As with the Dahlia and Manson, the Menendez brothers' case once again cast L.A. in the lead role of a morality play. To many, the brothers became the personification of the corrosive greed and materialism that prevailed in America, and especially in L.A., in the 80s. No one gets rich without paying for it. But before we move forward in time, one more little moment to share. One day, Eric is being returned to his cell at the L.A. County Jail, where he's spending his time while waiting for his second trial, when the door at the end of the hallway opens. The police are bringing a new prisoner into the jail. In fact, the prisoner is going to be housed right next to Eric. As Eric approaches his cell, he hears it. Hi, Eric, the new inmate says. Eric looks up. He can't believe his eyes. Hi, O.J., Eric says. The Menendez brothers, whose case best defined the 80s in Los Angeles, have just collided with the man whose case defined the 90s. Hi, everyone. Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. 
Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Escape Artist, O.J. Simpson. His great accomplishment was to be indicted for a crime and then receive the kind of treatment typically reserved for rich white guys, Tanahashi Coates. I'm going to end this journey through L.A.'s most infamous chapters right where we started it, at that nondescript condo entrance. The truth is, there is no such thing as the trial of the century. That's because every generation and every place has its own, a case that sticks with you forever. That changes the way you see the world or see justice. For me and so many others, that case was O.J. Simpson. O.J., for an entire generation, was the introduction to 24-hour news and televised trials. It was like nothing we had ever seen. It was just like a soap opera. There were fights, dramatic reenactments, crime scenes, emotional outbursts, and it was real. And so we kept watching. It's June 12, 1994. I Swear by All for One is the number one song on the radio. L.A. is still living in a post-L.A. riots reality, which had rocketed the city in 1992 following the not guilty ruling for police officers who had beaten Rodney King. And just that week, the movie Speed premiered and is already a runaway success. Set in L.A., it puts Girl Next Door Sandra Bullock on the map, cements Keanu Reeves as the next big American action star, and blows audiences' minds with its famous bus-jumping-a-freeway scene, which was filmed on the newly finished 105 freeway. You know the one I'm talking about, right? The bus can't stop moving lest a bomb on board goes off? So when they end up on a stretch of unfinished freeway, the only thing Keanu Reeves can do is rev the engine and launch the L.A. City bus across a 50-foot chasm— action movie gold. The film's screenwriter, Graham Yost, initially wrote the script with a bus that had to travel at 20 miles per hour, but then a friend suggested that 50 miles per hour would be more exciting, and so he changed it. Little did early audiences know that just one week after the film premiered, they'd all be glued to screens across America watching a real-life action movie, The White Bronco Chase. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. First, we need to talk about what exactly happens on June 12th. That night, Nicole Brown Simpson and her ex-husband, O.J. Simpson, attend their daughter Sydney's dance recital at Paul Revere Middle School in Brentwood, a posh, mansion-studded neighborhood nestled into West L.A., right next to Santa Monica. It's been a very tense day. O.J.'s girlfriend, model Paula Barbieri, dumped him that morning via voicemail. And as if that's not enough, she's dumped him for Michael Bolton. And beyond that, things are almost always tense between Nicole and O.J. Their marriage had been extremely troubled. O.J. had had affairs and had subjected Nicole to brutal physical abuse throughout their relationship. But both are trying to hold it together for the kids on this day, and so both attend their daughter's recital. Afterwards, at around 6.30, Nicole, her mother, sister, and children go to Mezzaluna Restaurant on San Vicente Boulevard in Brentwood. Today, it's a Pete's Coffee, But back then, it was a trendy restaurant that Nicole and O.J. had frequented in the years they were together. The family leaves the restaurant at around 8 p.m., 
and stops for ice cream on the way home. But when they get home, Nicole's mother realizes that she's left her prescription glasses at the restaurant. The waiter, Ron Goldman, who is friendly with Nicole, volunteers to run them to her house later. Meanwhile, just about nine minutes' drive north, also in Brentwood, O.J. Simpson and his house guest, Brian, a.k.a. Cato Kalin, grabbed dinner at McDonald's. In 1998, O.J.'s house on North Rockingham Avenue will be razed to the ground. But in 1994, it's a gorgeous, gated estate. O.J. and Cato return home around 9.45 p.m. At almost the same time, Ron Goldman leaves Mezzaluna with Nicole's mom's sunglasses and heads to Nicole's condo on Bundy Drive. It's only about a three-block walk, about eight minutes on foot. This next half hour, between 9.45 and 10.15 p.m., will change everything. At 10.15, while watching television, one of Nicole's neighbors, Pablo, hears the cries and constant barking of a dog. Now, fun fact, 13 years later, Pablo, who just happens to be a ghostwriter, will ghostwrite a little book called If I Did It by O.J. Simpson. It will outline the hypothetical way in which O.J. might have done the murder, you know, if he did it. But that night, Pablo is Nicole's neighbor, and he's concerned. Meanwhile, at O.J.'s Rockingham estate at 10.25 p.m., a limo driver pulls up. O.J. has a flight to Chicago that night, and he's there to pick him up. But O.J. isn't answering. The limo waits. He buzzes again. Still no answer. Fifteen minutes later, at 10.40 p.m., his house guest Cato hears three loud thumps on an outside wall of his room in the guest house. They startle him. Meanwhile, out front, the limo driver keeps buzzing for O.J., but getting no answer— he calls the limo company to see if he should leave, but they tell him to stay until 11.15, since O.J. is always late. At 10.55, the limo driver sees a man that fits O.J.'s description walk across the, walk across the driveway towards the house. Five minutes later, Cato comes out front to investigate the noises he heard earlier. He sees the limo driver, and the driver buzzes the house again. This time, O.J. picks up. He apologizes and says that he overslept and has just gotten out of the shower. Just after 11 p.m., O.J. loads his bags into the limo, and they head for the airport. By 11.45, he's on a flight to Chicago. 30,000 feet below, something is clearly not right on Bundy Drive. A neighbor is walking their dog and finds one of Nicole's dogs wandering the streets, off-leash. Its paws are covered in blood. At 12.10 a.m., the bodies of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman are discovered outside her townhouse. Gruesome photos of the crime scene will eventually be leaked and make their way onto the front of every news station and newspaper in America, singeing themselves into our collective memories. When the police enter Nicole's house, they find a cup of melted ice cream on the banister, the TV on, a bath drawn, and candles lit. This was clearly a surprise attack. Nicole and O.J.'s two children are asleep in their bed. No idea that their entire world has just exploded. At 5 a.m., after spending the night processing the crime scene, LAPD detectives Mark Furman and Philip Vaniter arrive at O.J. Simpson's house. And when they do, they almost immediately find what appears to be a blood stain on O.J.'s white Bronco. This Bronco isn't the one that'll soon be on its televised chase through L.A., by the way. This is O.J.'s personal Bronco. 
By 7 a.m., O.J.'s house is declared part of the crime scene, and they get a warrant to search the premises. And there, they find shoes that match the bloody footprints left at Bundy. They find DNA from Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. They also find a bloody glove that matches the one left at Bundy. O.J. is now officially the suspect, and a warrant for his arrest is issued. He flies back to L.A. from Chicago, but rather than turning himself in, he goes on the run in a different Bronco, that of his friend A.C. Cowlings, the famous white Bronco. O.J. has a gun, over $8,000 in cash, a wig, and his passport with him. He's also written what amounts to a suicide note. At 1.50 p.m., LAPD Commander David Gascon reveals during a press conference that, quote, the Los Angeles Police Department right now is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. Then at 3 p.m., Los Angeles County District Attorney Gil Garcetti holds a news conference for the world to see and tells a rapt public that, quote, Today my office filed murder charges against O.J. Simpson for the deaths of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Lyle Goldman. As of this time, approximately 3 p.m., nobody knows where he is. People had begun tuning in to see the insanity unfolding hour by hour in L.A. Highway Patrol. Yeah, um, I think I just saw O.J. Simpson on the uh, five freeways. That's all we have. He got a gun to his head. Okay, what's your name? My name is A.C. You know who I am, goddamn. Then at 5 p.m., an ashen Robert Kardashian, O.J.'s longtime friend, stands in front of a dozen news cameras and reads the letter O.J. has written. It says, I loved her, always have and always will. If we had a problem, it's because I loved her too much. He then ends the letter with, I've had a great life. Local stations are beginning to break in with live coverage of the craziness unfolding. But then, at 5.51 p.m., the craziness gets even crazier. O.J. Simpson calls 911 himself. He has a gun to his head, and he says he's about to end his life. The police trace his location to the 5 freeway in Santa Ana, more than an hour south of L.A. The California Highway Patrol finds him in minutes, and so do the news helicopters. They begin following him and film the most famous chase in American history. The NBA Finals are interrupted to broadcast it. That chase itself, by the way, has LA's fingerprints all over it. LA was the first city in America to have news helicopters with cameras. And it makes sense. LA was the home of the big movie studios, along with their cutting edge film equipment, like helicopters with aerial cameras. Hollywood had pioneered the use of the technology, and it had now made its way into the news stations here. The chase does eventually come to an end after 45 minutes. Upwards of 95 million people have watched it unfold on live TV. In fact, it becomes the busiest day Domino's Pizza has had to date because so many people are glued to the screen. In an era before DoorDash, you know, if you wanted it to come to your house, you probably had to order pizza. OJ is arrested and charged, and eventually he is sent to the county jail where he will spend almost three months in a cell next to Eric Menendez. During their time as cell neighbors, they talk a lot. They reminisce about the old days. Because yeah, 
The Menendez brothers and O.J. knew each other before their infamous cases. Remember when we said that Jose Menendez had been a VP at Hertz? He'd been the one to put together the deal that brought in O.J. as their spokesman. Remember those iconic commercials with O.J. running through the airport? Jose had helped ink that deal as a young exec at Hertz. And so, O.J. had spent time with the Menendez brothers as kids, even staying at their family home. O.J. had played football in the backyard with Lyle. He gave him pointers on his throw. Crazy, right? Well, now it was the brothers giving O.J. pointers. Eric suggests that O.J. contact a high-profile defense attorney named Johnny Cochran. O.J. takes Eric's advice, and the rest is history. The trial presided over by Judge Lancito, a native Angelino whose roots went deep in the city. His parents had been Angelinos too, but because they were Japanese Americans, they were deported from LA during World War II and sent to internment camps. Lance was born not long after the family had been able to return. Judge Ito makes the fateful and controversial decision to allow the trial to be televised, a call that would alter the justice system, television, and American society forever. Initially, the evidence is damning. There is a bloody glove, a bloody footprint, and DNA linking OJ to the crime. There is also copious evidence of OJ's past as an abusive husband. But there is something else. There is the LAPD's past as a violent and racist department. And this is a point worth repeating. Two years before, L.A. had been rocked by the L.A. riots. The L.A. riots had erupted in response to the acquittal of several LAPD officers in the beating, on camera, of a black man, Rodney King. How hard would it be to convince a jury of Angelinos, especially African-American Angelinos, that the LAPD might have been willing to tip the scales against O.J. Simpson? Not very, it will turn out. He's guilty. He's got to live with himself, man. This is terrible that he's going to get away with this. Uh, let this battle be a, a courtroom battle uh, and not a street battle. After an 11-month trial, O.J. Simpson is acquitted. The jury deliberated for only four hours. When asked why they were so quick to make a decision, one member of the jury replied simply, 265 days. The jury had been locked away from family, friends, and television for two-thirds of a year, and they were done. Faced with overwhelming physical and circumstantial evidence that pointed to O.J.'s guilt, he somehow managed to pull off an escape that far overshadowed any fancy footwork he'd ever pulled on the football field. And he's done something else. He's launched America into a new era, one from which a powerful narrative will emerge. A story in which sometimes the story you tell and how well you tell it is more important than what happened. A post-truth world of televised trials and a kind of no-holds-barred news coverage that buries the Cronkites and Jennings of a previous era. L.A. will become ground zero for the genre of reality TV, which isn't really reality at all, but a sort of contrived reality that plays by its own rules. The O.J. Simpson case was one that only could have unfolded in a place like L.A., just like the others you've heard about in these episodes about Dark L.A., the Black Dahlia, 
Manson, and Menendez, they are forever seared into our collective memories. Los Angeles isn't inherently darker or more dangerous than any other big city in the world, but the crimes that happen here, they stick with us. They have celebrities and high-stakes trials and gossip media and paparazzi, and they dial all these things up to 11. The crimes that happen in L.A., it seems, are always ready for their close-up. And they keep L.A. in the forefront of people's minds as a place of extremes, a place in which each new generation sees its dreams coming true and where previous generations see nightmares of things to come. So sunny, but so dark. That's L.A. Thanks for listening to these stories of dark L.A. Now that we've explored the underbelly of the city, there is so much more to check out in the other L.A. episodes in this guide. From food to music to road trips and not the police chase kind of road trips, we've got you covered. We want you to get along with, understand, and love this city as much as we do. Be sure to subscribe to Circa on Apple or Spotify. You can also check out our guides to Rome, Barcelona, New York, London, and many, many more, and many more to come. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it.